The Biden administration wants to speed up federal permits and environmental reviews for projects under the $1 trillion infrastructure law. The White House Permitting Action Plan includes a Federal Permitting Improvement Steering Council for how the council hopes to expedite things. Federal News Network's Jory Heckman spoke with the executive director, Christine Harada. We serve as a central coordinating body for coordinating all the environmental reviews and authorizations for certain covered infrastructure projects. We're a very unique federal agency, the newest member of the federal family, if you will, and we're charged with improving the transparency, the predictability, and the outcomes of the federal environmental review and authorization process for certain types of infrastructure projects. And the statute authorizes us for 12 sectors that we are very active in, and our council has a unique governance process That includes the 13 federal agency council members, so at the deputy secretary level and above for, you know, departments like agriculture, commerce, interior, energy, et cetera. But also myself as the executive director of the permitting council, chair of CEQ and director of OMB. So it stood up with a governance model, processes, as well as some reporting requirements for accountability purposes to the Hill for precisely that purpose. You say that you're a a new agency amongst agencies here. Just so my audience has a better understanding, how long has the council been around? We were first stood up in 2015 by Title 21 of the FAST Act, or the Fixing America's Surface Transportation Act. And that initial statute had a sunsetting in 2022. With the bipartisan infrastructure law that was passed in November, the sunset was removed and we are now a permanent member of the federal family. Recognizing that there are a lot of agencies working on this line of effort here of infrastructure spending, how does the administration's new action plan improve cross-agency coordination? Because there seems to be a lot of moving pieces here. Well, that's precisely the reason why you need a central coordinating body, right? Because there are indeed a lot of moving pieces. These projects are extraordinarily complex, right? So if you were to take an example project that we would work on, like offshore wind or multi-state electricity transmission lines. There's a whole slew of environmental reviews and authorizations that the projects need to go through, both at the federal level, the state level, the tribal and local government levels as well. And so on the federal front, we work closely with these agencies to think through and develop the permitting timetable. So what are the specific authorities that the project needs to obtain from which agencies, who are the actual specific folks at those agencies that are going to be responsible for the project and pulling together the master Gantt chart, as I like to call it, so that we are able to provide greater transparency and accountability and predictability. And if you were to check out our website, you will see the federal permitting dashboard that we manage and maintain for that very purpose. Okay. And I recognize that your mileage is going to vary considerably depending on what the project is here, but what are the scopes of how long it takes for like the environmental review, the environmental permitting stage of any one of these projects. How long does that usually take? To your point, it can really vary. And it also depends on specifically where it's located. So for example, if it's a relatively, what I would call a more straightforward project, like a transmission line that is located solely on federal lands, the number of agencies that you would be dealing with, you could probably count on one hand. On the other hand, uh, if it's for a larger, more complicated project, like an offshore wind project, you've got probably about six federal agencies that you're going to be working with. And so, of course, then time kind of can vary appropriately with that as well. 
Other factors that influence time also include, you know, the specifics of that particular project. So whether it be the endangered species that we're trying to protect and or the technical complexity or the novelty of the particular type of project. So again, offshore wind is a brand new industry for us in the United States. And so thinking through all of the issues, uh, not just for that one project, but also from a cumulative perspective is something that we're very actively working through. I see that one tool in the toolbox here is the federal permitting dashboard on the website. Tell me, because I know that transparency and visibility into these projects is a big concern for the administration. How does this dashboard do exactly that? Yes. So if you check out our dashboard at permits.performance.gov, you will see the master Gantt chart of all of the projects that are currently covered. The dashboard, by the way, covers both our projects under the FAST 41 statute, as well as a number of Department of Transportation projects as well. And the information contained there is largely the same. That is, what are all the environmental reviews and authorizations required for that particular project? When did the project start or for those particular activities? When do we estimate it's going to end? And it also has subcategory milestones, right? So for example, if it's in the midst of the NEPA process, when do we think the draft's going to be released? When is the record of decision going to be released? When are the various notifications going to happen, et cetera? Okay. And I think we got into this already a little bit here, but cross-agency coordination seems to be really key here. And so in your role on the Federal Permitting Council, how can you ensure that that cross-agency collaboration is happening as part of this process? I think the challenging thing about these infrastructure projects in general is that there are a number of technical issues that need to be overcome. And by technical, I mean, like, you know, what are some of the environmental science issues that are impacting it, not just from an engineering type of perspective. And so frequently, you know, we will engage with the agencies in calling the question, right? A lot of the staff are trying to work through and resolve what the various issues are, resource conflicts, you know, whatever the case might be. And then thinking through how do we want to move forward frequently requires elevating these types of decisions and discussions to leadership. And so in that role, in that vein, our agency plays the role of, you know, calling the question. This particular project, we're running into a number of issues, decision or conflicts, you know, if you will, between agencies. And we just need to figure out how best we want to move forward. Some of those are very difficult conversations. Some of them are also frequently uncomfortable conversations. And, you know, there are times when we just need to make really difficult decisions for what is in the best interest of the nation and for this project. Just looking at the fact sheet that came out recently, they say that this action plan really looks to address potential conflicts and bottlenecks before they arise. This seems to be uh, an involved process, even if everything goes well. But, you know, what are potentially some of those conflicts or bottlenecks that you think of that you're trying to get ahead of as part of a lot of infrastructure spending that's going to be happening? Yeah, so there's what we might call like more policy related type of issues that, you know, we can foresee. So for example, if we observe a trend across multiple projects in the same sector, so let's say again, whether it be like with transmission lines or, you know, with offshore wind or even with onshore renewables like solar fields, you know, if we start to see the same patterns of behavior or same patterns across multiple projects, those are the types of things that we want to make sure that we're raising for leadership and engagement. Some of the examples here might be around that we frequently hear about around like endangered species. We want to make sure that we are doing what's right for the environment and for protecting the species as appropriate. And there are certain locations for which that species absolutely needs in order to be able to survive. And so frequently for those kinds of situations, it's a relatively black and white case, right? But there are also situations where it's kind of in the shades of gray. They might be able to survive, you know, yes. So there are certain parts of the map that are absolutely off limits. 
some parts, you know, might be a little bit more hashed out, if you will. And so in that particular case, you know, trying to make the call with the scientists to make sure that we're doing the right thing is frequently what we're called in to do. Christine Harada, executive director of the Federal Permitting Improvement Steering Council, speaking with Federal News Network's Jory Heckman. Check out Jory's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Hello, I'm WIPA CEO Shane Canfield, and thank you for joining us on another episode of Lessons in Leadership. I'm honored to be joined by Angie Bailey, founder and CEO of Ananda Life. Angie has a remarkable career in public service, beginning as a GS2 clerk typist with the Social Security Administration. And over the next 40 years, Angie steadily worked her way up through the government, ultimately becoming the Chief Human Capital Officer at the Department of Homeland Security. She's been recognized with presidential rank awards by two administrations for leadership, innovation, dedication, and commitment to the country. Angie, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Shane. What a pleasure to be here. Angie, you've made quite a name for yourself as a leader in the federal workforce. Who was the first person you remember looking up to it? as a leader, and what about them inspired you? you no, know, I often think about this because, you know, sometimes we think of the people that we look up to the most as being somebody that throughout our career has, you know, been at the highest levels and all. But, I, you know, I've got to go back to honestly, whenever I was 10 years old, and uh, I remember I really wanted to play Little League play- baseball on a boys team. I was the only girl. And interestingly, it was the women who would keep saying to me that, no, I couldn't play. And then one day, whenever I was there to sign up yet again, uh, there was this guy, his name was Delbert Beiser. And uh, I remember he had like red hair and he had wadded tobacco in his mouth and greasy overhauls and everything. And he said, you know, I'll take her, I'll take her on my team. And, you know, just looking back on that, there are so many leadership lessons and things that I just really admire about him. And actually I thought about throughout my entire career, he took a chance on somebody he didn't know. He um, put aside whatever conscious or unconscious biases that he might have had about having a girl on a team. He treated me the same, uh, whether, you know, if I wasn't performing, I got benched just like the boys. I got no special treatment. And, and, and he was just really honest with me and he just included me in everything. And so looking back on it, you know, really, it was Delbert Beiser, our local mechanic in our little small village that was I think my inspiration for going on to, I hope, become the leader, um, you know, that that I wanted to be. I'd say half of the guests on this podcast have had similar stories where they reach back to either childhood or young adulthood, and I and I think as leaders, it's really incumbent upon us to keep that in mind that that what we say and do. Admit it, especially in the younger ages, really can have a lifelong impact. How would you describe your leadership style and, and how has that developed over time? I would say that the one word that describes my leadership style is that I care. Um, I guess that's more than one word, but I care. Uh, I, I've always cared about the mission. I've always cared about the people. I've always cared you know, about making sure that that they had what they needed or that they were developing the way, uh, you know, that they aspired to develop. And I tried to take this approach of not treating people the way I wanted to be treated, but instead treat people the way they wanted, they want to be treated. And I think that that really kind of developed over my career. You know, I started out just like most leaders do where it's very results driven. It's all about the bottom line. You need to make sure that you get everything accomplished because, you know, that's what everybody's looking for, the goals, the metrics, et cetera. 
But I think as you mature and you go along, you start to, to your point, you draw back on those early childhood days or early adult young, you know, whenever you're a young adult and you say, you know, I think that there's a little bit more to this than just the bottom line. And so over time, I really began to, I, I think, see a much bigger picture and the entire ecosystem, if you will, and how the people themselves fit into all of this. And that ultimately at the end of the day, it was all about the people. And so I, you know, I think my, my maturity allowed me to then shift and focus more on the people than, than so much on results and bottom line. You've been recognized with two presidential rank awards, two different administrations. You founded your own company. Tell us a little bit more about your background from the beginning and, and how did that lead you to where you are today? Well, you know, it's kind of interesting, like you said, that I started out as a GS2 Social Security Administration. I mean, what I really wanted to be was a criminal prosecuting attorney. It's, that's That was absolutely my dream. I sometimes joke and say what I really wanted to be was a mafia don, but that wasn't going to work out. So, you know, had to be a criminal prosecuting attorney. But, you know, I had to get a job to pay for college. I, you know, it wasn't in the cards that I was going to be able to go to college without a job. So I applied at the Social Security Administration, or I'm sorry, at the unemployment office, and lo and behold, I got a job at Social Security. I didn't even know it was federal, to be honest. Uh, From there, I went to the Department of Defense, and I found this, this career field called labor and employee relations. And honestly, it was as close as I was going to get to being a criminal prosecuting attorney. I didn't go on to be a, a criminal prosecuting attorney, but I went on courtesy of the Department of Defense to get both my bachelor's and my master's in leadership, because the whole study of leadership, I just find incredibly fascinating. Um, you know, from hi- historical to current uh, current times, I just, it's just something that's just really fascinated me. And so I just, I would say I'm a lifelong learner of leadership. And then I would say some of the other things that got me maybe where I am today is I never really said no to anything. If people asked me to take on a new challenge, even if I wasn't sure I was going to be successful at it, I would say, you know what, not sure this is going to work out, but more than happy to give it a try. And it always worked out. But I think giving things a try and just not saying no to opportunities is what really led from one position to the next. I feel like I was always rewarded for just stepping in or stepping up and taking on the challenges that sometimes no one else wanted to do. Angie, thanks so much for joining us today. Oh, thank you, Shane. It's such a pleasure. I I really appreciate you giving me this opportunity. Thank you. This has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm CEO of WEPA, Shane Canfield. Looking forward to talking to you next time. This episode is brought to you by Zelle. Whenever you're sending money through an app or online, it's important to do it safely. Here are a few helpful tips. First, always make sure you know and trust the person you are sending money to. Second, confirm you have entered their contact details correctly. And finally, if you don't trust the person or your recipient is rushing you to send money right away, think twice before sending money through an app or online. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.